Salam and hello. Welcome to Uproot. My name is Lily Bakada Piper, and today's episode is one that is near and dear to my heart. We'll be talking about the African American experience in Africa. And it's the perfect time for me to share with you why I call this podcast Uproot in the first place. As an Ethiopian American and first generation immigrant to the US, I've always found connection and comfort in the presence of other communities who've had similar experiences of being uprooted. The African American community in the US really helped me form my identity as a kid and, and anchored me as I grew up. 400 years ago this year, the first enslaved Africans arrived in the US. And despite being uprooted from their homes, black Americans have created new roots and new stories. My hope is that Uproot the Podcast can redefine what it means to be uprooted and that the stories we share here, especially today's stories of resilience and joy and justice, can help us pause and celebrate the roots that have allowed us to rise up. So today's conversation is about African Americans who have come quote unquote home to the motherland. What is it like to go from being a minority in the U.S. to being a part of a black nation, a black economy, and an entirely black culture? I ask my guests if Africa feels more like home than the U.S. or if they feel the Tunis that W.E.B. Du Bois wrote about. We talked about code switching and whether or not it's possible to feel lonely even when everyone else shares your racial identity. It was a fascinating conversation, and I was particularly thrilled to have my husband, Dr. Ben Piper, on the panel. He was my favorite. Enjoy the episode. I'm thrilled you tuned in, and I hope you walk away having learned something new. Welcome to Uproot. Welcome. Thank you for tuning in to Uproot. My name is Lily Bakella Piper, and you are listening to a very special edition of Uproot today as we celebrate Black History Month here in beautiful Nairobi, Kenya. The transatlantic slave trade started about 400 years ago, exactly this year, when 20 and odd enslaved persons arrived in Jamestown, Virginia. Today, as we celebrate Black History, we remember our ancestors who made that very long journey and the many millions who didn't survive it. Today, we're collaborating with our community of African-Americans living in Kenya called Still We Rise, and it is an absolute honor and privilege to be a part of this extended family here in Nairobi of African-Americans who have brought, come to Kenya for many different reasons, business, diplomacy, education, and have really put their stake in the ground to build a community here. In our culture, whenever there is a tragedy, we like to take a moment of silence to remember those who may have been lost. But today, I'd like to take a moment and take, um, have a moment of sound to celebrate our ancestors, to celebrate that we're all here today, to celebrate the many stories that have made today possible. Robin Emerson, one of our Still We Rise members, started us off this afternoon by saying the names of many of those individuals. And so in recognition of those names and the names that we don't have time to say because they number in the millions, can we just take a moment and make some sound to celebrate our ancestors and that we are all here today? All right, now all of Milimani knows that we're here. So excellent, thank you everyone. As we get started today, we wanted to have a conversation about what exactly was the African-American experience in Africa. 
Research has told us in the last many years that the number of African Americans leaving the United States and finding refuge across the world, numbers in the tens of thousands. Ghana in particular has taken a really bold step to welcoming African Americans and members of the African diaspora to say you have a home here and Ghana estimates that they have three to 5,000 African Americans now living in Accra. While we don't have exact numbers for here in Nairobi, Kenya, we know that we are many and we have found each other through conversation, through socializing, through social media, through business and work and partnership. This community has come together and has been a source of strength, a place of home, and a real sense of Pomoja spirit here in Kenya. So with that note, I'd like to ask each of our panelists here today, I have four friends who are joining us, to just give us their name what you do here professionally, and how long you have called Kenya home. So, Robin, we'll start with you. So my name is Robin Emerson. Um, I have called Kenya home for now 11 years, um, but I came here for the first time 15 years ago. Um, but that's to Kenya, but I came to um, Africa for the first time probably 18 years ago in Senegal. And what I do, I'm an urban planner. I'm an urban planner, um, a community builder, and um, I formerly own a real estate business. Welcome, Robin. My name is Ben Piper. Um, my official title, which I wouldn't normally say except for today, I'm the Senior Director for Africa Education uh, for an organization called RTI, and we work on uh, improving education outcomes across Sub-Saharan Africa, um, supporting this year one million teachers across the continent. Um, and I've been here for nine good years, and I first visited Kenya 22 years ago. Uh, greetings, my name is Curtis Reed. I am uh, originally from Chicago and I've been in Kenya for 12 years. I am a pastor uh, specifically to young people. I direct a ministry called Sankofa Student Ministries and I also teach part-time at Daystar University, hip-hop courses and philosophy courses as well. Welcome. Um, hi everyone, my name is Rebecca. I came to Kenya in 2012. I work for an impact investment firm called Acumen, and I look after our agriculture portfolio there. And the first time I came to Kenya was actually maybe 20 years ago. My roots are actually in disaster response. And so um, I was covering Rwanda after the genocide and Nairobi was my home base, so. Um, coming back here was, was really quite familiar. Yeah. Welcome to all of you, Karibu. And we have a live audience here, folks who represent all parts of the diaspora of all continents probably, so welcome to all of you as well. I'm gonna ask my panelists to think back to maybe the first day that you arrived here in Kenya or wherever your first place was in Africa. So Robin, you mentioned Senegal, you mentioned Rwanda. Uh, maybe you've been to other countries as well, but I want you to think back maybe to the emotion that you felt as an African-American who was not born in the continent, the first time you stepped foot on the continent. Recall for me what you felt. Robin, go for it, sure. Um, I, th I think I, the first time I, I, I came to Senegal, I was running a global citizen educational program. And so I would take teenagers, um, like some of them that are in this room here, to different countries around the world to have them get a sense of how the world operated and how it functioned and for them to broaden their perspective of the world. And one of those places was to Dakar, um, Senegal. And the students that I took were mixed 
um, sure. ethnicities, um, mixed economic and social backgrounds. And I did not go with, I'm going to go and kiss the ground. <laughs> so you know sometimes you read, I'm going to get off the airplane, yes. hit that tarmac. Yeah. That's what I did. Yeah, the first I time got I it. came back. Yeah, yeah. I got it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I didn't because I felt like I needed to. I'm going, I'm going with all of these children. It wasn't a I'm going to find my roots mm. kind of trip, if mm. you will. So I didn't have that going. I had administrative worrying about children, so forth and so on. Mm. But when I got there mm. and I... Um, saw all of the people with melanin on the beach <laughs> at Senegal, playing in the beach. Many people, men, <laughs> just black people in the beach playing. <laughs> you know, in the U.S., that is an elite experience. Mm -hmm. To see people playing in the ocean or playing and having fun and frolicking in water, mm. that's an elite experience in the U.S. So when I saw that, I, I bust out in tears. I said, wow, mm. look at the joy and the happiness and delight. Mm. And so I jump in the water, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but then I went to Gory Island. Mm. And Gory Island is one of the um, doors of no return. Mm. And there's a, 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 water, a boat you have to take there. And so there's you know, a boat you have to get to Gory Island. And as I was taking this trip, and I had all these youth on the trip, and you know, many of them were um, my other Caucasian brothers and sisters, they had no emotional anything to this trip. Mm -hmm. So they were jumping. I said, do you not know how significant? Yeah. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I said, yeah. no, I need you to temper this down and, and get present to yeah. the, how many of the bodies that might be in mm. this ocean as yeah. we are crossing to yeah. get to Gory Island. Yeah. Yeah. And then when I got to Gory, that's when the gravitas really set in. Yeah. Um, and you look out and you see, you think about that experience yeah. um, that our ancestors may have had. And I just thank God that, you know, the ones that were, that were strong and mm. held on, that they were some yeah. of my, my, mm. man, my ancestors. Yeah. And I just thank yeah. God for them um, and what they went through. Yeah. And, and so that's, that's where my yeah. experience was. Thanks, thank you for that. Uh, again, I, my first trip to Africa was here in Kenya, and to understand kind of how I felt, you have to understand how I grew up. Uh, I grew up in Cleveland, the greatest city in the world, not just America. Yeah. And, oh, we will, we will edit that yeah, out. No, Don't worry, true. we will edit it. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah. No, 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 that's true. Just, just factual. Anybody else want to be so, on the panel? Um, no, no. Anybody else? No, that's a, has to be said. So, um, in Cleveland, the part of Cleveland I grew up, it was a very interesting mix of black and white in my high school. So I went to high school, it was 50-50 black, white, which is pretty unique. But in the classes I actually was in, I was always the only black male, always. So I'm used to being myself as a black person, but around a predominantly white culture. We went to college at a great school with another lovely lady on the panel. Um, and it was a similar thing, where you were around very interesting and engaging set of you know, different people of color, minorities, but in most classes, you're the only, one of the few black people there. And particularly my school, which is a Division One college, you know, every you know ninety percent of the other black males, unfortunately, were scholarship athletes. So I always got asked what sport I played, and I said ping pong, and people thought that was hilarious. <laughs> so anyway, so I'm used to kind of being one black person amongst predominantly white culture. So coming here to Nairobi for the first time and walking around downtown Nairobi and seeing all these people in suits and ties and you know business dresses everyone being black was really a touching feeling for me, an emotional experience to see that a, a society that was growing, the growth rates in Kenya for 20 years have been impressive and it's all led by, by black people. And literally that first trip, I, um, 
I was falling in love with a lady at the time, I, when I went to rural parts of Africa in like Kipia County, I almost had the same feeling of literally falling in love with the culture and the place and the beauty of rural Kenya. Um, and so that first trip for me uh, as a college student coming to Kenya was really powerful. I knew, just like I knew I was going to marry this woman, I also knew I was going to live in this part of the world mm. for sure and try and do something that mattered. So that's my story. That's really interesting because in Chicago, especially on the south sides or the west sides, you are likely not to meet a white person at all. <laughs> and I did not meet a white person until I was 18, other than a police officer or a teacher. Wow. So white people were the authority figures in our neighborhoods. So for mile after mile after mile in every direction, that's all you meet. I had two South Korean students in my entire primary and high school. That was it. Um, so when I came to Kenya, I remember a few days afterward, just like my brother Ben said, when I, when I came to downtown Nairobi and I saw black people doing it, you mm -hmm. know, running it. Yeah. And that's something that you don't see in Chicago. I mean, you see black people everywhere, but when you go to downtown Chicago, of course, it's mostly white folk and people of other ethnicities and so forth. So I remember this this great sense of pride. There was a lot of weight uh, mm -hmm. to, to that moment because, you know, growing up in the States, we were taught that uh, Africa was uncivilized, uh, mm -hmm. that African people don't do anything of, of real, real importance, and especially not in, 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 in corporate business type sectors. So to see that myth shattered in, in my face was a beautiful, beautiful thing. Oh, makes me emotional listening yeah. to you. Yeah, I resonate with that. Rebecca, what was your first experience like? You had a different entry point because you were coming in the middle of crisis. Yeah, actually, um, Rwanda was actually not my first okay. uh, time here. So I first came here um, when I was an undergrad. Um, and it wasn't Kenya, it was actually Cameroon. Um, and again, I think context is important here. So I grew up in Houston. Um, I went to a predominantly black elementary school, predominantly black middle school, predominantly black high school. <laughs> I went to a black church and I lived in a black neighborhood. Mm. You were so, black, black. Yes. Yes. Um, and in Houston, um, there weren't a lot of um, Africans. First of all, there was no distinction between Nigerians or, um, or, or Cameroonians or whatever. It was just Africans. Um, and it wasn't necessarily this like kumbaya, my brother, my sister feeling. It was, it was really us and them. Um, there was there was there was a distinction between blacks and Africans in in Houston at the time, um, and so I didn't grow up with any um, romantic feelings about the continent. To be perfectly honest with you, um, my 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 entree into being interested in what was happening here actually came through language. Um, I was a French major in undergrad. And once you get past, you know, the, the, the you know, near perfect tense, the future tense, and, you know, <laughs> the mechanics of a language, then you start to probe into the poetry, um, the thought leaders, the culture, the politics, etc. And you can't study the language of French 
without getting into the politics of France and colonialism. And that was really my entree and my curiosity um, about, about Africa. And so um, that curiosity led me to take more classes in African studies. It led me to befriend African students on campus. And so by the time I made it to Cameroon, um, I felt very comfortable. It was just mm -hmm. like I was spending time with my friends mm -hmm. in, um, in, 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 in undergrad. And so for me, it's, it's always been this, um, this desire to learn more and understand more um, about the African experience, about, um, and, and admittedly my, my vocation has, has really always been to recognize the challenges that are um, endemic to the continent mm -hmm. um, to see where um, I can be helpful. Um, that's, that's more so been my approach. Um, I started out, again, um, looking at disaster relief because that just happened to be my, my first job was with an NGO. Um, and as I have evolved um, professionally, um, the thread of wanting to be um, um, supportive of the progress of the continent has continued, um, but I just do it in a different way now. I'm an investor um, instead of working for an NGO um, because I do think that um, business has a really important role to play here. Um, and so that, that's a little bit about my, my journey. So I guess I want to ask you if you have felt like coming back to Africa, because all of you have been here past that honeymoon stage where everyone's black and it's beautiful and you know you just go around with your fist in the air all the time. And um, we're all past that now and we've lived through different experiences here that have you know made it home like anywhere else would be home in some ways. But I guess um, uh, maybe I'll ask you, Curtis, do you look at your growing up years in Chicago, look at, which was all black, look at your Kenyan experience that is predominantly black, and say, where, where's home? Where do you look at and say, yeah, I'm home? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I, I struggle with that, to be honest with you. Uh, in terms of culture shock, when I got here, language was a big issue. And uh, as, as I keep going, um, I've been really fortunate to have many, many great Kenyan friends. Some of them are here today several of them, um, but I do realize that I'm a guest in this nation. Mm -hmm. I'm a guest of this culture, mm -hmm. just the way if a Kenyan were to come to my neighborhood in Chicago, they would be a guest there mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. well. Uh, one great thing about my life is that I'm married to a Kenyan, and we have three uh, children, so they're African-American in a different sort of way yeah. than I yeah. am. But so when I think of home, I think of Kenya, because honestly, I've been living here for a while now. I don't intend to move. I, I intend to die here. Mm. But uh, I've, I've lived here long enough now where there's some critical distance between myself and the states. And I can see the states in a way that's very, very different than when I was living there. So what, what's shifted for you? What has shifted? How do you, what, what do you see now, maybe that you saw the, differently? I was home last, I was in Chicago last year, and I needed to get some breakfast for my children, so I went to the supermarket to get cereal 
and I went down the cereal line, and both aisles <laughs> were just full of cereal boxes, and I was disoriented. Yes. Honestly, I'm serious. I think that happens to all I of us. I got dizzy. Yeah, yeah. So, that happens to me in duty free. I go through duty free, really? and I'm like blown away. Yeah. But so many options, yeah. and I wonder if these options are actually distractions. Mm. I would have never seen that if I had never lived here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the materialism, the the consumerism, yeah. the the you know, shiny everything is so shinily packaged, yeah, even dog yeah, food. Yeah, yeah, it's so true. It's really really strange. Yeah, you know it is. It is. We yeah. we um took our kids to Toys R Us the first time we went back to the US after we had been gone for a few years and we took them to Toys R Us to buy gifts. I probably should not mention companies, should I, unless they're sponsoring this show? Okay, I'll take some sponsorship, Toys R Us. But anyway, uh, are they closed down? Oh, oh, they closed down since I left? <laughs> oh, well. Well, this is a new point now. So much has happened. But we took them to Toys R Us, and, you know, we're walking around, and we, again, we took them there to buy them something, and they ran up to the first section, you know, calling each other, look, look, they've got, you know, whatever it was big then, ran to the next section, ran around the whole store, and we're just waiting for them to say, can I have something? And then we got to the end, they're like, thank you for bringing us to this toy museum. <laughs> we're like, it's not a museum. You can buy stuff here. But like you said, that materialism. I mean, it was one of those moments where I said, thank you. At the time, Ethiopia is where we were. I was like, thank you, Ethiopia, that my kids do not necessarily see everything as up for purchase. But anyway, we're getting off the top of, be, of being black. But I guess, um, Ben, let me ask you, um, W.E.B. Du Bois talks about in his work that black Americans in America often feel this two-ness of being a Negro and also being an American. Do you feel that same duplicity here? Good question. Thank you. <laughs> um, I think it's a complex world we live in. And I think being a minority in the US does prepare you well to being a transplant in this part of the world. Because you're used to finding ways to communicate that are not always necessarily comfortable for you, but are focused on the hearer, the person listening, yeah. finding a way to communicate to them in a way that they understand. Yeah. And so I think that in some ways, I'll argue that being an African-American who's had to build those skills up living in the US, mm -hmm. in some ways, for, at least for me, I feel like has made it easier to be someone who's lived and works across cultures. Because mm -hmm. you're always thinking about trying to assess their world, their point of view, their questions, their interests in a way that at least my growing up has prepared yeah, me to do. Yeah. Well, let me, let me interrupt you there. So what, what if you're thinking about the other people communicating, what's the two-ness now for you? Is it being an American and then being a guest, as Curtis said, in this country? Is it oriented around your race? Where is that you know, fitting in when you're talking about thinking about how others are communicating and what that means? I think a lot of things where one of the surprises of living in this part of the world as an African-American is that while you are a ally when it comes to issues of race, you're often an other when it comes to issues of wealth. And mm. so just the ability to have an accent that is different, you are grouped in kind of a wealthier thing. So everywhere you go, the assumption is you bring money, which is kind of true because I work for an NGO, right? So people are assuming you're coming and you're gonna just distribute things. Um, and so trying to make sure you're connecting to people in a way that is personal and human and, and tries to fight against that kind of assumption of kind of, of wealth and you know, money that underpins a lot of the interactions, mm -hmm. sadly, for people who work in our part of the world. Yeah. And I think just it's one of the beauties of not only being here in Kenya as an African-American, but getting to work in a couple of different countries at the same time where you do have to understand Uganda is not Kenya, is not Tanzania, is not Ethiopia. Say it again yeah. for the people in uh, the back, and, please. And yeah. 
and having to make sure that I know my history of each of those countries, understand who's the president, what's the situation in TZ versus Uganda, and know how things are different. And that's a task. And when we want, as African Americans, we want people to understand our reality in the U.S. And it's incumbent on us to understand our reality in this part of the world. I think that's something I take pride in trying to read every day something about African history, African political economy. So I go to these places and these meetings and and not treat people the way that people treat us sometimes when we're mm. there in our world. Mm. Thanks. Robin, please jump in on there. <laughs> yeah, um, just kind of, I wanted to jump in on um, this otherness or foreign visitors. Yeah. Yes. Um, I find that I'm kind of listening to several people about this um, discussion about inside of, the, like the AU has a diaspora um, agenda. Um, I think Uhuru just a, a week or so ago said, we welcome all African to yeah. to Kenya. The United Nations has a whole, whole year that they I don't know if you know that right now yes. it's going on a whole decade actually yeah. the so, year of return. So I've been that. watching um, this guy I think is Uhuru uh, YouTube Uhuru, and he says us as African descent can we go to any embassy and say I want citizenship I am a descendant of your country hmm. can we go there and say I hmm. want to reclaim mm-hmm. my citizenship. Mm-hmm. So my question, I always freak like, why are we seen as other? Yeah. That really is my question. I, why are we seen as others? Why don't we actually are seen as, you mm. actually are a descendant here. Yeah. I can, we can trace your, your people, yeah. 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 Why isn't, a, a, why isn't a, nas- a country being that progressive? Uh, because I think this otherness lingers in the air. It does linger in the air about our existence. Um, you know, we are here, um, you know, sometimes on, on borrowed time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're here on borrowed yeah. time. So anyhow, I just wanted to just, kind of, I've just kind of been thinking about that. And, yeah. you know, what is the, what is the belongingness of, of, right, of descendants, right. if you will? Well, let me ask you to flip that question a little bit on its head. And I'm asking, Rebecca, I'll ask you to chime in after Robin. Um, growing up, did you grow up with a sense of, African roots, like this is my history goes all the way back there. So then when you come back, you do come in as, hey, I'm your cousin. I'm not a guest. I, I, you know, this is home. Or how, how was Africa framed for you growing up? Um, Africa was framed for me as um, pride and, um, and belonging. Mm. And, and we are kings and queens. Mm. That's, that was my context yeah, growing yeah. up about Africa. Yeah. We, are king, we come from kings and queens. Yeah. Um, we come from brilliant people. Um, math it didn't just yeah. pop out of anywhere. Yeah. Um, so that was my context. Yeah. And I am pro-black. Yes. I'm super pro-black. <laughs> I love my blackness. I love your blackness. Yeah. I am super pro-black. And it's important to say that because I think in this context, that's a comfortable idea. When we add the American to the end of our name, African-America, the saying I'm pro-black and I love my blackness and yours becomes threatening to some audiences. And I think it's important for me living here. I've come away with the same kind of, I was pro-black before. I'm like you, I'm super black now. But I think I no longer see that as threatening. I grew up having to modify that for the audiences who would hear it. And I love hearing that publicly and boldly said because I want my kids to walk around in the world with the same sense of identity. Yeah. We've been talked a moment ago about this duality of language, and that's code switching. That we, yes. we, we've, yes. had that, we've had yes. that ability for, for years, code switching, as he says, to, so that it lands softly on the hearer's ear. Yeah. And that goes back to slavery. That goes way back to slavery to, I don't want, you know, I don't want Massa to be upset with yeah. my tone yeah. and how I say something. And that carries on to today. Yeah. 
And so the fact that we still are doing it to our brothers and sisters here yeah. is just a continuation. Yeah. I yeah. would love for us to get to a point where we can you know, hear each other mm. and, and he hear the background of what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I want to get to the background of what you're saying. Yeah. And I get to there's some hurt, maybe some love, some aspiration there. Yeah. And sister and brother, I'm here to help you achieve that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Thank you, Robin. Rebecca, for you growing up in Houston, you referenced your neighborhood, your church, your high school, and this very rich you know, community that you came out of in certain terms of identity. Did you have, was Africa in the back of your mind um, as a 54 country continent? Hello, not just one country, but you know, this identity of yours separate from just being American? Uh, not at all. Um, so case in point, this is I think pretty emblematic of how I grew up. Um, I go home for the holidays and my family says, hey baby, um, how's Nigeria? And I was like, I don't know. I live in Kenya. <laughs> and they were like, oh, well, it's all. This is a reset thing. Yeah. Oh, okay. They're like, oh, it's all the same. We're just glad to have you back. Yes. You know. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that is a perfect example of the absence mm -hmm. of the African narrative in my upbringing. Mm -hmm. I grew up in Texas, um, and we were so, as a family, we were so focused on the Black American experience. So think civil rights movement on you know my my um my my grandmother um worked in the house of a very wealthy white family you know my mother participated in the sit-ins and then here i am so it was it was it was juneteenth it was mlk day mm -hmm. it was you know do you know all of the black history that you can possibly i took a class in black history in high school yes you know so black history for me it didn't really start here. Mm. It started once the once the ships landed. Um, so that was really where the focus yeah. was for me. Um, and I think, so interestingly enough, um, I think I feel more than this duality. I feel kind of this. There, there are three kind of identities or experiences that I have here. Um, I have the the experience of being a guest here. That's for sure. I have the experience of being an African American here and I have the experience of being an American here. Those are very three lenses or experiences that I have here. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there's obviously a connection when I'm speaking to other Americans regardless of what their, you know, their, their background is. So there's that connection. Of course, there's the connection. Um, it's a different connection when I connect with black Americans. I think one of the, again, one of the interesting examples, uh, I, it happened probably a couple of months ago. There's a very popular show um, in the US called Blackish. Um, mm -hmm. And um, I absolutely adore the show. Same, same. Um, it not only speaks to my experience as an African American, but it's also very like generation specific. The writers are around my age. Um, and so I'll sit and I'll rave about Blackish to um, my other African friends who are worldly, who are global. I'm not the first black American that they spent time with. And I, I'll re retell a joke and they're like, I don't get it. Yeah, yeah. You know? And I'm like, how could you not get the joke about yeah. Jodeci? Yeah, how can you yeah. not get the joke about, oh, you know, Chris, you know, yes, Chris? Yeah. And so these are things that are very unique to a black, the black American experience so that even the most global um, African um, would not necessarily be able to really understand the nuance of. Yeah. Um, and so for me, there are these kind of three disparate, yeah. disparate yeah, um, yeah. lenses through which I, ex yeah. uh, I experience 
Africa. And you, and you didn't even put gender on there. So then once and you I had didn't even put gender, gender when you had economics, yeah, when you had all that, it's, it's, a, right. it's a lot to carry that's actually right. into a business room. It's a lot to carry into a classroom. That's right. Something I tell my kids, you know, is that you can opt out. You don't have to educate everybody about everything, about who you are. You don't have to educate them all about being a woman or being black or being African-American or being Ethiopian, you know, like, because it's a lot to carry. Um, I want to throw this out to all of you. What has Kenya taught you about blackness? as a concept, and I'm gonna leave that very loose because from all four of you have very probably different definitions of what blackness means to you, but what has Kenya taught you? Um, and I'm talking Kenya specifically because that's why we all have connected, it's because we all have lived here for many years and that's where we are fortunate enough to be hosting today's episode. So um, I see nobody trying to go first. I'll so go Curtis, first. thank you. <laughs> I'll test the waters here. Uh, one thing that I've learned about blackness is, you know, obviously there are many uh, different perspectives depending on where you're from in the African world. But it seems like one of the things we have in common is the commonality of oppression. Mm. And I really feel like if there's one movement in the States, the Black Lives Matter movement should be international. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, when you think about police brutality, extrajudicial killings in the States, well, if you think it's bad in the States, it's worse here. It's worse in Brazil. Yes. And so that, that commonality uh, is what links us together. Yeah. It's the reason why in the States, when I see another black person, I always nod at them. Yeah, you know, yeah. You know the nod, are, yes, yes. Um, because we know that we've got at least that much in common, regardless of where we're from, what our mm. eco socioeconomic situation is, we know that we are minorities in this country. Yeah, and I, yeah. I really wish that consciousness would begin to permeate the entire African world. And, and if we could unify, even if it's just on that, yeah. that would be powerful. Uh, you, you just, um, we're, we're gonna have to do a whole nother podcast on this, but Curtis just organized the Whiteness Conference here in Kenya. And the purpose really was to expose places in which whiteness has invaded this Kenyan context. Um, and the history of colonialism we know is ever present um, in all of the spaces that we as black people occupy. And so I think your point is really well taken. And I think it's something, it's work that we have to do on both ends. You know, I think our African-American side has to do some work in terms of connecting Again, it's a very, it's a multi-dynamic co continent, so it's not an easy task. Right. And we have to do our part on this end of the continent too, to connect. And if I could just add the class distinction yeah. there as well, because it's possible to be an African-American and come to Kenya and never be exposed to these oppressive situations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that class thing is something we have Serious, to tackle yeah. as well. Ben, how about you? What has Kenya taught you about blackness? That's a good question again. Um, <laughs> I, when I first came to Kenya, I was uh, studying history. I was an African history minor. And um, I was just the semester before I came to Kenya, I studied the Mau Mau. My paper was on the Mau Mau. And I was a, in a that's, bad That's worth mood. making some sound right there yeah. for the Mau Mau, remembering their, their sacrifice I, I was for this a, country. Almost a permanent bad mood. I was one of those guys who would <laughs> go to the library and read something else about how black people in Kenya were mistreated. I just literally threw my books around yeah. the library. So I came to Kenya and went to the National Archives to kind of look at history from a Kenyan perspective. This is what the books have said. What do Kenyans say about, about that history? One of the things I recognized and learned about being, about blackness uh, in this part of the world is in some ways the, the ability to forgive for this culture 
that while there are still ways that people are advocating, we're in a place that is all about advocacy and about activism. So that's the one part of Kenya's culture and blackness. There's also the ability to forgive and move on and decide that I will accept. If you, one of the things that's amazing to me, Kikuyu culture, the, 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 the complexity of it and the ability to forgive a long history of mistreatment and fundamental mistreatment um, at the same time as being an advocate and ally and pushing for, for rights within the country and across. So just the complexity of the black experience and the ability of people to both be strong and, and say this was wrong, but as an individual, I'm going to move on. And I have really learned. And just one of the things that's been great about being here that you can only get by being here is, is just how this culture, in particular, Kenyans are loving, open, kind people, while not accepting injustice. That mixture at the same time, unhappy with injustice, but also kind and loving to the very people and the descendants of the people who were unjust to them. Uh, I've learned a lot from that. Mm. There's so much you said there that I want to unpack in terms of, because as, as an African, as an immigrant into the United States myself, um, and coming from Ethiopia, which is very much a, um, you know, wasn't, wasn't colonized, doesn't have that same emotional legacy. And so therefore, I, I grew up with an Ethiopia for Ethiopians, by Ethiopians, and the government's going to make it extremely difficult for you to come in and do anything if you're not Ethiopian. So then when I see actually black folks in the U.S., I feel like, wow, you had to forgive just to be emotionally healthy, just to move from day to day. And I see it here in Kenya, too. So it's interesting you point that out, because I, I guess I, I, as an immigrant to the U.S., saw the flip side and said, how, do, how is everybody here just not angry all the time? You know, Because it was shocking to me to hear a history that was still so unjust and, and then experience it myself. Um, I want to read a short passage from Ty Nahitsi Coates' book, Between the World and Me. Since there are a lot of students here, I would say this is recommended high um, reading for you, mandatory reading for my kids. And if you're not my kid, I still highly recommend it um, because it's a letter that he wrote to his son about his experience as a, as a black man in the United States and particularly frames it around this term around the black body and what the world has cost his black body. And he takes a trip to France with his family and experiences a lot of what James Baldwin, Josephine Baker, um, Nina Simone, all these other icons of black history similarly experienced when they went to France. And um, he, he says this quote, and then I'm going to ask just for a response um, from anybody from the panel. He said, it struck me that perhaps the defining feature of being drafted into the black race was the inescapable robbery of time. Because the mo moments we spent readying the mask or readying ourselves to accept half as much could not be recovered. So he's referencing here just the amount of time you guys have referenced about going into rooms where you're the only black person and the time it takes to educate your children about being black in white spaces. He goes on to say, the robbery of time is not measured in lifespans, but in moments. It's the last bottle of wine that you, just ha that you have just uncorked but not have time to drink. It is the kiss that you do not have time to share before she walks out your life. It is the raft of second choices for them and 23-hour days for us. It gives me chills to read those words because I think about how much preparation we have to do for our children when we go back to the United States. We have to give them the talk again because when you live in an all-black space, you don't walk around with the threat to your life all the time necessarily that you do in the United States. And the time that it takes to enter investment meetings, I'm sure, churches, you know, rural spaces, um, 
I guess I'd just like to hear a response to you. Does it give you chills? Do you, have, do you resonate with Coates' words? Robin, you're nodding and, and, and making faces. Tell me what's on your mind. Um, just a couple of things. I know that um, this is a recording, but I don't want to step over people in the room might not know what that talk is. Sure, sure, sure. Please do, yeah. Well, and I think um, basically it's that our, our, our children, is a, is a talk that we give our children that if you come in contact or interaction with a police officer, you just stop, you just um, listen, your put hands. your hands up, don't make any sudden moves. That is the talk that every parent has to give their child. Uh, and you pray that they're going to come back home at night. Um, I have two sons. Um, uh, I actually have three sons. And they are teenagers. They are Kenyan. But I, and they looked at universities and colleges. And they are brilliant. And they could have probably gone to any college of their, of their choosing. But in the back of my mind, there was, don't go to the US. I, I, I don't know if I can handle it. In the back of my mind, Harvard, Morehouse, Stanford, all of them, he could get in those. And that makes me sad. Yeah. That makes me extremely sad that I wanted to deny the possibility of you, because I can't, I can't protect you. Yeah. And the other thing about being here is I sometimes feel like a little bit distant, because I know that our family members are on the front line of this, yeah. day in and day out. They are, my father is on the front line. He's an older man, but somebody could pull him over. We've seen elder men getting pulled over, arrested. I, I just look for a call that something has happened to one of your relatives. And so that's a reality that I think also we have to, we can't, I sometimes, that's why I agitate for still our rise to be conscious a little bit. We can't be lulled into this um, expat living, if you will. We have relatives on the front line in America being abused and accosted and anything else. And so if we can still keep our agency as U.S. citizens and let people know, I am a taxpayer, and this is not um, settling well. And it only costs three cents, yeah. Kenyan cents, to call your yeah, senator exactly. or your and, representative and, keep, and advocate yeah, for, and those, agency, for yeah. those kind of, yeah. yeah. I was talking with um, our deputy chief of mission uh, prior to this podcast, and we were talking about the emotional legacy for African-Americans who were born in the United States versus people like myself who are immigrants, um, African-Americans born in Africa. And she and I really commiserate around this idea that we don't share the same emotional legacy because we are not the descendants of enslaved persons. And for all of our students here, nobody was born a slave. Nobody was born a slave. People were enslaved. But if there's one thing I would want you to take from here is to never call a black person in history a slave. They were not a slave. They were enslaved. And that's an important distinction as we try and make this connection between being Africans and African Americans and understanding our history. But this idea of a different emotional legacy really has been on my mind the last few days as I've been preparing for this. And Coates' words kind of resonate to that. Rebecca, you have two black sons too. What's the emotional rest maybe that Kenya gives you or not? I don't want to assume anything. We have you know, different experiences. Yeah. But emotionally, what do you feel like Kenya, how do, you, how do you experience Kenya as opposed to maybe how you experience the United States? Yeah. The microphone. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, so just to set the context, um, my firstborn is 17 and he's 6'5". Um, and he's about my color. He likes to wear hoodies. Um, and he has been here for the last seven years. Um, and if you think about the timeline of events, um, he missed the U.S. 
circa Trayvon Martin. He has very, he didn't, he didn't feel it, he didn't breathe it, he wasn't looking at the news, listening to the news circuits. So, and he, so he has a, and he, of course he knows about Black Lives Matter, but it, it's not a part, it, it, it doesn't rip his soul apart. Um, and so he has a completely different consciousness, completely different consciousness than his friends who, and family members and cousins who are still in the US. And so, and who never left. And so we have this conversation at home all the time. Like he's a very happy-go-lucky kid. If you've ever met my son Xander, he's just, he's just <laughs> a happy child. Um, he's not afraid of police. Um, you know, he bristles against kind of being super duper pro-black. You know, he's he's like I'm me, and I have my set of experiences, and you know, um, I, I move in and out of different circles, and I'm I'm very happy about that. Um, and so on the one hand, I'm like good, he doesn't have a chip on his shoulder right, about his right. blackness. He can move through the world and not be concerned that someone is like looking over his shoulder or watching him or anything like that. And, and so what if someone's watching him? Um, you know, it's, sometimes it's nice just to be ignorant and yeah. move through the world and let other people deal with their issues. But by God, when he goes back to the US, he's not ready. And so as a parent um, of a six foot five black male who likes to wear his hoodies, yeah. um, I've, I feel like in some ways I failed him by not preparing him. Um, you know, if, he, if we were still in the US, society would have, and the news circuits would have prepared him. And so when you're here, away from all that, and we don't, we don't, have cable or anything. We get our news from Twitter and YouTube yeah, yeah. and the New York <laughs> Times or what have you. Um, so we're very kind of filtered in terms of the news that comes into the house. Um, and so it is now on you know my husband and me to tell the story and to make sure he understands what's going on. Um, but he he's not ready. And so we are, you know, he's about to go to college um, in August. And so we have been trying to do a bit of a crash course. Actually, can you talk about it? We had the conversation recently about this, and I was actually you inspired doing by your idea. No, no, tell him what, tell him what you're doing. I think it's a, it's a great um, idea. So we, we felt like he wasn't ready. I'm glad he's not here. Uh, <laughs> but you know um, this will be on the air. We, okay. we, we felt like... <laughs> this will be public. We, we felt like he wasn't ready. And so we felt like, look, from, from January to August, um, it is our job to get you ready. Um, so there are certain books you need to read. Um, there are certain movies you need to see. There are certain conversations that you need to have. There are certain men you need to be talking to about the realities of being in the U.S., not only as a man, as a black man, as a Christian man, and so on. Um, and so, you know, for, for, for those of you who are Christians right now, he's in the process of reading Every Man's Battle. Um, um, he just read a really interesting book that um, may seem a little bit off base, but I highly recommend it. Um, Kobe Bryant's book, The Mamba Mentality. It's about what it really takes to be great. Mm. And Kobe says, greatness is not for everyone. Mm. So, you know, we have a series of books, a series of movies, conversations that he will be having from now until that we hope, we hope will prepare mm. him a little bit more than what he is um, prepared for today. Yeah. Um, some tough, tough movies he's going to have to watch. Um, some tough conversations that we as a family are going to have to have um, between now and then. But we sit squarely in this. On the one hand, look, I'm, 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 part of me is I'm, I'm glad that you're not broken yeah. um, by what happened to so many men who look like you. 
Um, but on the other hand, we all know that there are um, not so nice people out there um, that will um, um, undermine you, that will think less of you, and that will literally do harm to your body. Absolutely. Um, because of how they feel. So um, it's an ongoing uh, kind of issue in our family, and we, we, we talk about it more than, you know, more than I I, I care to admit. <laughs> no, it's, it's, I think it's something that, as a family for us, it's been a gift to be in Kenya. It's given us, I use the word for you, but it's been given us emotional rest. Our kids can basically walk through spaces and having, this is all they know, Kenya and Ethiopia, black people are the president, black people are poor. Black people live in big houses, black people live in small houses. Their, blackness is allowed to be complex to them. We get to be everything. We get to be difficult, we get to be smart, we get to be musical, we get to be nerdy. We get to be everything and there's no shade to that. It's, 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 it's so powerful. And yet I know, like you said, there's, there's a bit of that joy that I don't wanna take, but that I, I feel like we may not have a choice but to. Ben, you wanted to say something. It, yes, I, it goes back to the question of the relationship between U.S. and Kenya, um, and I think the thing that I think I feel the most is a real sense of responsibility as an African-American being here. I'll give you some statistics because everyone in this room loves statistics, particularly me. Um, <laughs> there were, you know, Philip Curtin says there's somewhere between seven and 10 million enslaved persons brought across the ocean. Uh, du Bois' number is like 15 million, but someone let's say 10 million people brought across the ocean um, to the North and South America probably less than a million of those actually made it to mainland of the United States. As many people made it to mainland of the United States as made it to the island of Barbados. The reason why that's a shocking statistic is because this type of slavery that existed in Barbados killed everyone within seven years. So I am from, as crazy as it sounds, I'm a descendant of enslaved people who did really well we had some terrible hundreds of terrible centuries, <laughs> but uh, the, uh, the African American experience is a, is a is a history of rising, of growth, of yes. of opportunity, of people suffering, but also finding ways to make it work. That less than a million people are now forty five. There have been presidents. There are cabinet members, or at least there were. Anyway, um, <laughs> there have been real meaningful contributions in, a, in a, 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 a meaningful way. 45 million black people in the US would be a powerhouse country in sub-Saharan Africa. In some ways, the, the history is one of the best of any <laughs> ethnic group in any part of the world. Yeah. So as a member of those people, when you think about the way that Africans have been mistreated fundamentally by colonialism, the, we, are under, we are in Kenya, which suffered under British colonialism, which if you compare British colonialism to Portuguese, French, or German, it was by far the best. The most humane and the most uh, caring, but it was fundamental taking people's land and everything that that, that meant. So. I am from a background of people who have been extraordinarily successful as African Americans, so I feel a real tremendous amount of responsibility that being back here, I need to be representing the best of my people from the US. So when I'm here working, I have to do well. I have to do well. I have to work hard. I have to care. I have to find a way to be successful to help the people in this part of the world that I love so much. So by virtue of having that history in the US, it pushes me and pushes us to really do whatever it takes to make a contribution for this, this continent that has had even a tougher time through, uh, through the interaction with, with Europe. You know, because um, 
Ben, you touched on it, the, the story of the African-American diaspora in Africa, the descendants of enslaved persons is nothing, it's a story of resilience, of determination, of brilliance. It is a miracle. It is a miracle to see where black folks are today considering what they had to go through and what we've had to go through. And so now to be able to take that power and then bring it back home would be, it would be incredible, but we need the pathways to do that. We need to educate ourselves about the pathways. We need to educate ourselves about the investment opportunities. It's a two-way street, and yet I think what I hear that kind of breaks my heart a bit is the burden that still remains on black people to do both things, that we do have that duplicity that Du Bois talked about, that we are never, ever free to just be Lily operating through the world. I feel a responsibility. I feel a, a joy and a privilege also to contribute, but it never leaves me. There is an emotional tax, an emotional crown that we have to wear as black people, no matter what space we're moving in. And, um, that's hard. It's, it's not easy. It's not simple. And yet, I think, Curtis, what you're saying, it's an opportunity, too. We can take that and we can turn it into an opportunity. Um, I'm going to ask one more question, and then I'm actually going to let our audience ask questions. So if you have a question or two, we'll, we'll leave about 10 minutes here at the end to ask questions of our um, audience, our panelists here. Um, when you think about home, long term, Curtis, you already told us you plan to die here, so what we know your plan. But for the rest of you, <laughs> Where is home going to be for you long term? When you think about you know, where your grandkids going to visit you or where is that place that you want to be at the end of these days, where is home going to be for you as an African American? Not a small question and, and a lot of hums and hums here. <laughs> Robin, sure. I, I, I think of the Stephanie Mills when I think of home. Yeah. From, um, the, well, um, I think what they say, home is where the heart is. I think that is just so many. I, I, I'm gonna die here. That's that's just. <laughs> it's the, here, Kenya. Yes, I'm good. I'm, I'm gonna die here. My my husband is Kenya, and I will be where my husband is. Um, but I do also um, see some flexibility and duality, if you will. Mm. I will have grandchildren soon. Hopefully, mm. we pray. And <laughs> well, more grandchildren. I already have three, but um, more grandchildren and. I want them to know that the world is, uh, Southwest Airlines said, you're free to move around the world. Yeah, <laughs> you're yeah. free to, I want them to know that they have many homes. Mm -hmm. They have a home here. They have a home um, in, in many places. And so I think that that home thing continues to open up for me. And I sometimes have to locate myself in it and yeah. say, you know, mm -hmm. what is home? Mm -hmm. um, is, it a, is it a structure? Is yeah. it the people? Is it a, a space? Is it a country? Is it what we're talking about? Is it what I'm eating? Yeah. I have to keep opening up with that home. Because sometimes I can get lonely. Yeah, yeah sometimes you, if, I, if I don't define home for myself, yeah. I can sometimes get lonely or feel like I'm missing something. And so I have to continue to redefine what that home is. I just want to touch on that loneliness, even though I know we're running a bit out of time. Is that loneliness for, is it a, is it a homesickness for the US or, or things that are familiar or yeah. for other people, you right. know, family? Yeah. That's not, where does yeah. that loneliness come from for you? I, I think um, Rebecca touched on it that, you know, the, the ease of just being, if you will. Yeah. yeah. I think Re Rebecca touched it. The ease of just being, um, the ease of just, just, just existing without um, interpreta interpreting at, yeah. at every moment. I would like to respond to that loneliness real yeah, quick please. because I, I think that's something African Americans will have to deal with wherever we are. Uh, there was a time when I first came to Kenya was 99, and I had long dreadlocks. You did. I, I wish did. this was a TV show know, so they could see many, you now, Curtis. Many moons, <laughs> many moons. But 
back then people didn't have dreadlocks in Kenya unless you were Mungiki or Rasta. And I was always being stopped by the police and I was always getting taken into police stations. So one time this police guy stopped me, we were going to the police station and he says, okay, so which tribe are you from? And I told him I'm African American. He said, I know, I know, but which tribe, which tribe? <laughs> and I, you know, I can only repeat that. And we do that about three or four times and then finally I begin to understand he doesn't have a framework for my existence. And it hit me that I was someone who was from a so-called lost tribe. I held it together in his face, but when I finally got home, I cried. And that loneliness doesn't necessarily go away. I mean, you learn how to cope, and again, you have these great supporting systems, Kenyans and, 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 and you know, when black Americans come here or whatever. But that loneliness, it, it persists. It's, an, it's a really interesting dynamic that I'm not sure if other people can really fully uh, comprehend. You're absolutely right. And, yeah. But the beauty of it for me is my children aren't lost. So with them living here, with them, you know, fluent in Swahili and learning Kikamba and spending time with Shosho, grandmother, and all these different people, they've got an orientation that I never had the luxury of having yeah. growing up. Yeah. So we begin anew yeah. through yeah. our children. Thanks for that, Curtis. You know, it's interesting. I, I feel similar I, I, because I'm Ethiopian-American. I Also, I, I know the stories of my people from way back. So I've been pushing my husband, who's African-American, to find his roots. And so for his birthday last year, I got him one of those DNA tests. Sorry, babe, I'm going to tell the story. I know you're waving your finger at me. Um, I won't give all the details except to say that I, I felt like, don't you feel lost? Don't you need to know where you're from, where are your people from? You know, we want to identify. And, and I'm thinking about my kids. They want to know where, is, where are their roots, you know. And so we got the test. And I went with a black one. There's a black uh, DNA company. I forget their name now. But um, that did it. Is it Ancestor? Um, so anyway, we got the results back. And they were not what we expected. And that the it comes with a letter that says to you, first of all, here are your results. We know it may not be what you expected. However, a lot of people, a lot of African Americans do come from all over the world. And so the number one traits that showed up in Ben's ancestry were Spanish and... Portuguese, which for Ben, he had this whole like NBA draft in his head of the countries he wanted to be from. He was like, please let me be from Senegal. Please let me be, you know, maybe I'll be, you know, yeah, this and that. He had a whole list of, and so it was a, a bit emotional to see that the DNA and his mother, he's biracial, so his mother's white. So, but we had even done the paternal test where it's tasting your paternal bloodlines, not his mother's. That is what the genetic the test told us. Black. And his father is black. Black. He's black, yeah. He's 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 black. He's doesn't yeah. And so we picked a test that was specifically looking at his paternal lineage, and even in that, the traces of slavery were there. And I think it broke our hearts to think, even with genetic testing, we are still not able to find what is home or what once was home for your people who are now my people. So it's, I appreciate what you said, Curtis, because uh, we have a chance now to redefine what home is for our kids, and, and I'm sure it'll look lots of different ways. Rebecca, where do you see your long-term home to be? You know, when Xander's done with college and Emmanuel's done with college, where are you going to find, or wh wh how are you going to define home? That's a great question. Um, I, 
I enjoy traveling and I enjoy living around the world. So I think my husband and I have a couple more countries in us. Okay, 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 um, Rebecca. To be honest with you. <laughs> um, when I think about home, I think about kind of two places. Uh, home for me is Houston, um, hands down. There's no pretense there. They know my story. They know my journey. So it, you know, I don't sound like I'm from Texas, but um, it's, it's, still, it's still very much there. Um, and then I think the other place that home is, this will sound maybe a bit unusual, but home is, home is where I call the shots. Um, so meaning that um, wherever we are, um, where Ron and I have decided this is where our home is going to be, these are the rules of our house, you know, this is how I interact with him and how he interacts with me, um, that, that is where home is. And that could be in Kenya, that could be in, you know, Toronto, that could be in Harare, it doesn't matter. Um, it really is kind of where he is and where the life that we want to live is being manifested uh, day in and day out. So. I think one thing that I hear from all of you, which is quite beautiful, is that you feel free, is that you feel free to choose where home will be, to feel free to redefine it, to create it anew, to stay where you are, to go back. And I think that freedom is a testimony to our ancestors, that's something that they gave us and something that we have a duty to preserve and protect for those who come after us. Um, I'd love to take time now to take questions. So I know it's, hopefully you're not too hot, hopefully you're not too bored. Are, are we together still? Are we together? All right, all right, great. So um, I'm gonna give the microphone to Siren. If you have a question, if you can just raise your hand and she'll bring the mic to you. Hi, my name is Carol. I'm so excited to be here. This is the first time in Kenya that I'm having conversations with African-Americans apart from Curtis. And that's very, for me, that's very sad because we, maybe I'm in the wrong crowd, <laughs> but I feel like we also need um, more spaces and more conversations where our African, our Africanness is being shared, our mutual Africanness is being shared. Then the other thing I'd like, and to connect that to what I feel we've missed in, in this conversation is the impact of Black Panther in connecting our stories, because we never understood as, I'd say, as black Africans, we have not understood the struggle of African Americans. And so what Black Panther did for me and for many people is to, is to connect, to have the, the antagonist and the protagonist portray the struggle of what being black is and so if we would have many more conversations around that so that we have the shared so that we continue to have the shared experiences and get to learn each from each other as equals without our titles without our heritage without all the things around us i really really have learned so much from this space today so thank you I think what you said is so great. I can't believe we haven't, we've gone this whole time without mentioning Black Panther because it was so beautiful to see all of the black people in the U.S. who got together to go to showings, and, and white folks too, clearly, made billions of dollars. So lots of people, lots of colors went. But just to see people wearing African dress and dashikis and 
I saw people with drums going through movie theaters, like, and it was beautiful. I think people felt seen, and then on top of that, there was this added bonus of this conversation that Black Panther kind of created. And we know it's a movie, and we know it's not everything, but it's something. And so thank you, Carol, for, for you want to speak to that? Uh, go ahead. Uh, um, sorry, you can go to yes. the next guest back there. Well, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. actually, um, knowing that you can't have this conversation without mentioning Wakanda. Yes. Um, so I'm, I'm glad you brought it up. But after that movie, there was a discussion that was hosted um, by some Kenyan um, artists and um, intellect, intellectuals. And, and one of the conversations, the takeaway from that conversation and some of the people on the panel, um, their interpretation of the Black Panther was black Americans needed that for an emotional mm. salve. Mm. We, uh, and, and it was from Kenyans. Yeah. And, I actually interpreted that that they, some Kenyans, see black Americans as whiners. Hmm. And that's, that was kind of the, you, you guys needed that. Hmm. We are black and we have been black and proud and independent. Yeah. You needed that. That was for you. Yes. Yeah, More, you, less for us. You yeah. needed it. Mm. You needed yeah. it. You needed to see yourself on a screen. Mm. Yeah. We see ourselves all the time, yeah. every day, yeah. and so forth yeah. and so on. Yeah. And so I, I agree that this conversation is so necessary that we can hear that. And what I basically, I, I start, first of all, I started to get offended. But then I said, you darn skippy, we needed it. Yeah, we yeah. got some emotional scars yeah. going on here. <laughs> yes. And you darn skippy, we needed that. Yeah. And we need more. Yeah. And it is not a problem to, 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 for us to get emotional and excited about that movie. Um, and what it portrayed, and we can get into its accuracy and its all of all of those other sorts of things. We can we can talk about, but what it represented was extraordinary. And I think that these conversations with um, our Kenyan brothers and sisters is so important. Um, I, I would. It's funny. I had actually the completely opposite um, perspective um, in that the movie was actually good for Africa. For a long time, Africa has has had a really um, negative branding issue. Um, that started circa 1980s um, with the Ethiopian baby with a distended tummy flying around, you know, with flies flying around. That has been the dominant image of Africa for far too long. Um, and so, you know, when I go back and share pictures and share stories about my experiences here that don't line up with that narrative, people are kind of like, mm, maybe. But to see Black Panther, to see the everything from the beauty, the technology, the excellence all around, and have it come from this fictional place, Wakanda, but that could be extrapolated to the continent. It was massive. Yeah. It was massive. So I'm glad I was not a part of that conversation. I would have, um, it would have been a very robust debate. <laughs> It would have been a very robust debate, but I think it, it actually did a lot for the brand of the continent. For people who are investors and businessmen and women, we already know what the GDP is, what the economic growth is, how much FDI is going into the country. We know those stats, and we know that this is a place where business can be done. Trump's friends know it. You know, it's no secret. But to people who are not a part of this, 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 this sub-community, they don't know, and they still carry, I think, some of these more disturbing narratives, or just inaccurate narratives, um, about what it means to, to be here, to live here, to love here, to play here, to grow here. Um, and I feel like 
that story um, really it 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 brought it to light in a really beautiful um, and and well done way. Wakanda forever, y'all. Okay, another question here. Yeah, good evening. A uh, lot of issues converging here. This needs to be a continuing conversation Absolutely. to unpack all of what we're talking Absolutely. about. I, my name is Sara Madiel. Uh, I'm a repatriate. I'm, an, I'm a spokesperson for a repatriate community in Africa, Northeast Africa, specifically Israel. I know that sounds strange to a lot of us in here, but we consider Israel to be part of Northeast Africa, geologically, geographically, culturally, historically, et cetera. Specifically, I think maybe for Brother Curtis, um, we look at America, and I heard the term, terminology about this 400 year, this convergence mm -hmm. of the 400 years. 400 years takes on a very special significance when you talk about biblical history. Mm -hmm. And so, and even in the Rastafarian music and that, that element there, 400 years was very, very significant for us and it represented the end of a prophetic chastisement and captivity. Mm -hmm. And so the word celebration was used earlier mm -hmm. and that's problematic for me mm -hmm. in that the only thing good about a captivity, which America has been for Africans in America or African-Americans, the only thing good about a captivity is when it's over. Mm -hmm. And so from my context, I see the 400 years marking the end, and it's not something to celebrate other than that we're celebrating Our going ancestors. into another we're 400. We're celebrating what we came through, yeah. You know? yeah. And so, so finally, you know, as Malcolm X said, a cat can have kittens in an oven, mm -hmm. but that doesn't make them biscuits. And so I don't <laughs> see ourselves as African-Americans. We just went through a captivity, but prophetically, maybe, maybe Curtis, you could speak to it. Anyone on the panel? Toda. Thank you. Thank you. you. I'm sure you probably have much more to say about the prophetic dimensions of the 400-year captivity than I would. Uh, but I would like to say something about whiteness, uh, because I, I know you mentioned the whiteness conference. But I want people to understand that when I talk about whiteness, I'm not necessarily talking about individual white people. I'm talking about a, a systemic value system and a belief system that impacts every single one of us in this room, whether we want it to or not. If you are Kenyan and you went through a Kenyan, a Kenyan educational system, you have been socialized in whiteness. I guarantee you. And of course, the same for America. So as a Christian, if we don't understand whiteness, then we can't understand the difference between manifest destiny and the Great Commission. If we can't understand whiteness, then we don't, we can't separate European Western thought from African thought so that we can envision for ourselves a future that's in our best interest. So it's really, really important that we identify this stuff, not necessarily to, to, um, to place blame on people or to demonize other people, but just simply as a way to understand who we are. And to me, the captivity will not end until we can do things like that organize around you know what God has created us to be so you know the 400 years you know I feel like that's a that's a huge milestone those of us who've been to Gore Island or been to Cape Coast or to Elmina in Ghana when you know when you see what African people went through on their way coming here not even the middle passage just the these slave castles themselves, I used to be really, really hard on African-American people. 
Why can't we do this? Why can't we do this? Why we always got to be like this? But when I went to that slave castle, something in me shifted because I realized, wait a minute, we shouldn't even be here. I began to cut us a lot more slack, (laughs) honestly. But, you know, we still have a long way to go. I mean, we mentioned those statistics about, you know, economic institutions in Kenya. We're not free if we're not free economically. So that's why I have such a vested interest in this. Sometimes when I go home or go to Chicago, and we start talking about these things. And whenever we talk about oppression, one of the main comments I get from white communities is, if you don't like it, go back to Africa. And the reason why they say that is because they assume Africa is not a place worth going to. And so the freedom of African-American people is linked to this continent, whether we want it to be or not. We're one people. Sorry, I know I didn't answer your question. I have a question for uh, Mr. and Mrs. Piper. (laughs) Okay, son. (laughs) Uh, So how do you think your children uh, will adapt to living in America? Because it's so different from here in Ethiopia. And there's like a lot of life here is easy, but it's kind of, you know, I'm kind of getting tired of it, honestly. So I haven't experienced America that much, so. Okay. Thank yeah. you, thank you, Silas. That's that's our son, Silas. The good question that we've been talking about a lot. Um, you want to take it, hon, or you want me to take it? Okay, okay. I'll, I'll say something. I'll pass it to you because I think it's uh, evolving. And actually, I would love to have a sidebar with all the parents here <laughs> about how to do this. Because um, one thing that my friend Vivian and I have been doing the last almost three years is teaching history classes to a group of students, um, friends of our kids, who we just thought they're not getting any history in the U- in school that's American history because we go to international schools, so fair enough. They're, they're actually getting quite a lot of Kenyan history and world history. But we thought we are eventually, the passport we have is American. So the places that we can buy a home or own a business or whatnot is going to be the U.S. So we started teaching these history classes about three years ago, and I think um, part of the way I hope you'll adjust, son, is that you'll go back um, educated about economic disparities, about justice disparities, about the real history of the United States, which, by the way, they were, they were black forefathers and foremothers, too. They were free Africans who actually went and helped set up the colonies. Um, and so I don't know how you'll adjust, per se, emotionally, because I think... Uh, Every one of us here has a different story and a different path, but I hope you'll go back educated. Um, I had to learn in reverse. You know, I had to figure it out kind of upside down. So I hope you'll go back educated and empowered and know who you are. I think you're going to do great. Um, And the reason why I think that is that the life you've seen and the people you've been around are people who love this society, this, this network, the Still We Rise that you've created, Robin, the, the kind of community we have here is one that's really caring and you've uh, this there's a place where you can learn how to be yourself and I think particularly as a person of color you have a complex identity but I think you've really been able to explore it if you compare what it was in my life where there was black kids and white kids and they sat in literally we had a 50-50 high school the white kids sat literally on that side and the black kids sat literally on that side and I walked back and forth between the two 
and I was f- so aware of my difference on both sides. I think what I've seen in this society that we get to grow, we've gotten to grow up in, you know yourself, you know the complexity of the Ethiopian side and the African-American side and the white side. And I think the world we've lived in have successful Africans and African-Americans all around you that you're going to uh, be part of. So I think that's the, the case for a lot of us is that we've really, thankfully, been able to provide that to our kids. And part of this because... The, the time here has, going to your earlier question, the time here, do you feel more at home in Kenya or America? This is a calling. The reason why we're here is because this is God's will for us to be here. Part of my fundamental calling as a human is to follow Jesus as we come and work in Africa. So I don't know exactly where we're going to live. My wife is kind of the boss of those kind of decisions at the moment. But I do know that we're following a bigger calling. And so in, in the following of that calling, we know God's going to take care of you, my son. So our, our friend Muse in the front row was saying, what, is, what role does faith play in maybe this life that you're living here as African-Americans in Africa? Because we're running short on time, Robin, I'll, I'll, I'll toss yeah. that one to you. I, I mean, I, I think, um, first of all, this is Phil Dinjal, who I spoke about earlier. Um, yes. Yeah, he's queen. And so we're just glad that both of them have come. Um, I think I have, um, the Bible says, Ruth found a Boaz. And she said, your people will be my people. And I think that is, in uh, marrying my husband who is Kenyan, that is, that's where faith, where I sit faith for me. His people are my people. And he is my Boaz, and where he goes, I shall follow. And so as you keep that, um, that's, that's, where, that's where I keep praying every night. <laughs> that's where yeah. I keep praying every night. Okay, Boaz, where are we going? Yeah. And, but, but I recognize that. And, and that. and that is such an honor, that his people are my people. I don't have to make up these people are my, my people. Yeah. It solidifies it for me. We are one, mm. and his people are my people. We don't have to do anything else yeah. about that. I'm glad you bring up faith because I feel like faith and blackness has, is a complicated story. Um, I have to give credit to our pastor who recently said one of the mistakes he saw missionaries doing when they came to Kenya was discounting the local religions outright and just saying, you have no place here. This is the true faith. This is the true gospel. But if they had slowed down a little bit and maybe seen why do Kukuyu's honor Mount Kenya and does God rest on a mountain? Well, there's certainly a lot of biblical evidence that God has a thing for mountains. And if we had taken time to maybe honor what local culture understood about faith, we might have been further along in our, our ability to understand one another. And so I think this is another, I say this every time I have a podcast, this is another podcast to have because I think it's really complicated. I think the story of black people and Christianity is complicated. The story of um, the church as an institution, okay, in the continent and the legacy of missionaries here in the United States and the role and the lack of the role that the church played in the civil rights movement, not to mention abolitionism. I can get really going on this, and I won't, but it's a complicated story that we need to have if we call ourselves people of faith. Because I think what I struggle with as a black mother is that I have to live in way more faith to raise my black sons than my white brothers and sisters do because of the legacy that we live of injustice in the United States. And same in Kenya, because of the legacy of economic oppression. So that faith, it's, it's a big question, and I think we're going to have to visit it in more depth another time. 
Thank you all for coming to Uproot. It has been a total pleasure to have all of you here as Wangari Mathai, the proud mother of environmentalism and activism in this country said, and, and a, a, a saying that I've taken on as one of my own is, you have to keep at it until it becomes rooted. So thank you so much for being a part of Uproot today. Thank you for listening, and I hope you listen next time. Thanks for listening today. I'd love to hear from you. So please send me a message on Facebook or Instagram. You can find us at Uproot the Podcast or on Twitter. You can send me a tweet at, at Uproot and Lil. And that's Lil with two L's. Thanks for tuning in. Let's talk soon.